Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast with the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hello. Uh, for those of you watching the live stream, uh, I am wearing all red today. And well, uh, you were giving no me a hard time. One could argue about what colors you're wearing. It's too yeah. red. So I put on a hoodie to cover my red shirt, but it's a maroon hoodie. And Yeah, um, I, you know, not I mean, with me. yeah, we're not going to win fashion awards for this podcast. I think uh, unicolors, you know, solids, just like all one color is, is very in right now. So, which you are not wearing. I'm wearing well. I've been a lawyered. black shirt. I've been lawyered. Uh, th- hopefully, hopefully, the majority of our audience is listening and not watching today. That's right. <laughs> anyway, okay, you're yeah. very colorful. That's good. thank you. So, um, when we left off in our last episode, we were doing a little series here, and we were talking about mental and conceptual models. Do you remember that, yep. Guthrie? Or are you yep. purposely trying to forget? <laughs> yes, this is going to be part two. Part uh, two part, of that part, conversation. Part, uh, this is yeah of, of that conversation, but part many of our lecture. Part series. many of all these series series yeah. yep. we're yep. doing. So this is going to be uh, conceptual models. Uh, part conceptual two conceptual models. Yeah, and and we left it off. Yeah, uh, last time uh, yeah. talking about objects and views. Yes, uh, but actually, we left it off where I told you I was going to tell you the origin story. About uh, as a quick summary, if you him. did not listen to section one, conceptual models are very, I mean, conceptual. <laughs> and I <laughs> well, know that was really bad. good. Gethry. We we sort of determined that the reason it's so hard is because it's about the art of trying to say what goes where, and it's that's very difficult to do. Um, you know, objects are literally all nouns, and so it, it's just you know. It, you use this the same concept whether you're designing a toaster or a web app and you just those things are just not they're not the same and i think right. human brains have trouble wrapping their head around something so vague so huge as abstract it's a level abstract, of abstraction that's, that's that's challenging it is yep. okay but critical. So, let's, so now let's go into all of the uh, gritty details okay but first a story about children at play. Okay. So many years ago, I believe this goes back. Ooh, I should have looked it up. <clears throat> I've been trying to find this video that I watched once, Guthrie, a long time ago um, about this. And so far, I haven't been able to find it. But I think this goes back to the either the late 1970s, probably in the 1970s. So... Do you know uh, anything about the organization called Xerox Park? P-A-R-C? No, I know all about Xerox Park. Okay. So P-A-R-C, which stands for, I think, Palo Alto Research Center. So Xerox... It is, it is, it is Park with a C. Not park a with a C, yep. So Xerox... <laughs> is Xerox still around as a company? They are. Okay. For sure. So Xerox... Um, uh, which has been around a long time, had a research group uh, in Palo Alto. And they did research on all kinds of things. And essentially, they were researching user interfaces before they were called user interfaces. 
And this, you know, this is before graphical user interfaces. This is when um, you've communicated with a, a computer or an app by typing in on a command line, you know? And they were asking the question, is there a better way for people to communicate with computers besides just typing in lines of code? And um, interesting people that they were, they decided to do some basic research on how people interact with stuff. And they decided, they did, they did some research with adults. They brought adults in and would lay th objects out on, you know, lay things out on a table, you know, a block, a pair of scissors, a pencil or whatever. And they would just ask people to do tasks and they'd watch what they were doing. And they found that they weren't really getting very far with the adults because the adults felt very um, uh, uncomfortable being watched and they didn't know what they were supposed to do. And so they decided this might work better with children. So they brought in children, everything from toddlers up to maybe about age seven, and they would put, the, put them in a room with stuff, with toys and blocks and whatever, balls, and they just observed how the children interacted with things. And this is where they came up with the idea that the most natural way that most of the time people, and then they did test this again with adults, but the most natural way most of the time that people interact with stuff is, is um, well, there's two ways. One is that sometimes you just see something interesting and you go over to it and you pick it up and then you do something with it. Okay, so that's method number one. I don't have anything in particular in mind, but I see something. Oh, what's that? I go over, I pick it up, and then I go, oh, I wonder if this is like some kind of, you know, puzzle block. And then you start doing something with it. The other way that they noticed that people did things with things is they would see the thing uh, or they would think ahead of time, either before they saw it or after they saw it, I wonder if there's something here that I could use to do this. And then they'd look around and look for the something, and then they'd go find it, and they would pick it up and then decide, yeah, this would work, and then they would use it. So they were essentially thinking about objects and actions was what they came to realize they were doing. They were dealing with objects and they were dealing with actions. And, and some of the time uh, people, especially adults, had in mind a task they wanted to do ahead of time and then would look for the object to do that task on and then look for the method to take the action. And sometimes, especially with kids, there wasn't any planned task. There was just looking around and seeing an object that grabbed your attention, going over to it, picking it up, and investigating what it could do. But either way, one of the most important things I think that came out of their, you know, this is what we call basic research, generative research. One of the most important things that came out of it is that um, 
even, whether or not you had a particular goal in mind, people tended to be, when they were looking in their environment, very object-oriented, very much focused on, oh, what am I working on? There, that's what I'm working on. And then after that, deciding exactly what action to take with that thing, even if you had a higher level abstract task you were trying to do. So when they started working on graphical user interfaces, they um, thought about and planned uh, and did some work on um, making sure that the object, the thing that someone was going to take an action on, that it was very obvious what the thing was. So that objects were very clear, because in their in their view, that was how people were really starting, even if they had a task in mind. And um, th- you know, this was this was the beginning of uh, building in, you know, an object oriented viewpoint into design at an interface level. Now, I want to mention that the whole idea of object-oriented programming, not from the interface level, but from the design of software, that went on even before this. So can I do a little aside rant? Am I allowed to do that? Yes. And then uh, I I also have have an aside, which is just interesting. So my aside rant is that there are currently some people, and I will leave names out of it unless you want me to name names. There are currently some people out there who are uh, uh, working on and teaching object-oriented user experience design who claim that they invented the whole thing. And, <laughs> uh, and they invented it within the last 10 years. And I have actually tried to communicate with these people and let them know that there's a very long history about object-oriented programming and object-oriented interface design. I mean, it might not be called back in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't necessarily called object-oriented UX because the term UX is newer than that, but definitely is object-oriented interface design and object-oriented UX. It goes back a really long way, and there are books that were written about it, um, a lot of techniques, and, you know, a lot of, not a lot of people, but some people, I'm one of them, teaching it going all the way back to the 1990s. So this isn't a new thing, but it is, it is not necessarily particularly well-known, and I think it goes back to what we said at this top, which is, it's because it's not easy to do. So I, I, I have a lot more I'm going to say about this whole thing and how it applies and what you do with it in the modern day. But you said you had an aside too. Go ahead, Guthrie. Um, it, it's just about it's just about Xerox and Xerox yeah. Park. Yeah. Such a fascinating history. <laughs> yeah. Why? What do you know about it? So. It's really interesting because we're sort of, we might be seeing, how do I explain this? In the U.S., there are these economic um, eras that just kind of happen, and they're yeah. usually demarcated by some sort of... Um, economic disaster. Yeah, 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 some sort of giant <laughs> recession. recession. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there, were, there are these behemoths, and 
the behemoths are so large. Yeah, big companies that just are the they were the future, then they become yeah. the present, and then they become sort of not the present, not the future, not the present. The you know, present. yeah, the, the, the things change and they kind of flail around. Yes, definitely. And some of them um, dissolve and all but name. Yes. Uh, so you know, Kodak, Kodak would be one yes. enormous company, yes. and they're still, still around, around. But like you know, they're they're like a they're you know, a, little, a hundredth of their former size. I mean, uh, well, if any of the Kodak people are listening, they're probably now gonna. No, it's just it's that that's it's just true. the truth. I mean, it used to be yeah. one of like the anyway. largest companies. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are uh, you know, and so. The, the behemoths kind of come with the technology that then passes by. Yeah. Uh, the same could be said about radio. The Most of the radio companies got into television. Yeah. So, you know, like the ABCs of the world. Or, they morphed. Yeah. They're, they're still around. Pivoted. Yeah. Um, so sometimes they can pivot successfully and they just kind of keep going. Yeah. Um, sometimes they try to pivot and it just doesn't it work. Kind of doesn't work. Yeah. Um. You know, sometimes they pivot and it kind of doesn't work and then they can shift lanes because they're flexible enough and they can find a groove and they can kind of stay on their feet a little bit. Um, So, you know, we did the first wave was not the first wave, but like the wave that I'm sort of curious about was the was all the printers and the photocopying and the photography behemoths. Yes. Which yeah. is the uh, Polaroids, HP, Polaroid, HP, Kodak, and Xerox, Epson and Xerox. Yep. Now, some now there is still a market for printers and printing, um, and many of the mm-hmm. companies, you know, HP still makes. You have an HP mm-hmm. printer there behind you, mm-hmm. and they have an ink Wiping. thing, and it's a business line, but it's not like it was in the '80s, where it was right. just this dominant, Gigantic. enormous yep. money thing. Yep. Um, and Xerox is cert- certainly part of that. Obviously, you know, we call it a Xerox machine. Machine, I know. Right? Uh, that's, you know, that's a euphemism back when they ran the show uh, yep. in, a, in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. So um, I only bring it up because, you know, we also had the early PC behemoths. Yes. Microsoft. Yep. IBM, which I mean, I know they're, I know they're really early, but they transitioned into the yep. PC world well enough. Yep. Um, I guess uh, you know Dell, I suppose. Yep. Um, HP were they big in personal computing? Not in, not early not, on. No, not early on. Who am I missing? Am I Compaq. missing? Compaq. Compaq. Uh, Compaq is the now... Altos. A L T O S. Uh, Compaq is now Dell. I think so. I don't know. Uh, how do you spell Compaq? C O M P A Q. Q. I that's I always it's, it's it's like is it a K? Is it a Q? Um. Prior to its merger, who they? HP. Yeah, they so merge with HP. So, okay. so that's 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 why I thought that's why that's why I thought that HP was in the personal computing no. business because they were, but they just own Compaq's right. personal computing business. So sometimes, um, and and now we get to the big behemoths of the modern, oh, not the modern you, era. Do you know but, who had? You know who was pretty big and 
in the personal computer world? No. Zenith. Oh, yeah, Zenith, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Zenith. A Zenith Zenith personal computer. Um, They even had uh, uh, portables, if you can call them. I mean, they 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 made like uh, TVs and radio and. um, They got into the whole uh, cathode ray, CRT monitors. I I used a Zenith. um, How do you spell Zenith? Z E N I T H. I I used a Zenith uh, portable computer, I believe, once that weighed like forty pounds. We just thought it was so cool, literally forty pounds. I mean, you used to haul it around. Anyway, I'm well, yeah. So they're so they're they're part of the old old wave, which is the radio wave. And yes. I I forgot I forgot there were a couple giants yes, from that era. Yes, from Zenith radio is one, that went RCA TV that went RCA. Uh, yes. Yep. Uh, radio Shack. Being All right. Let's let's move on. <laughs> so well, so now now we get to the newer. Then now there's like the newest wave, and yes. they are they're old. Yes, and it's the it's the it's Apple, Apple, it's yep. Google, yes, and it's Facebook, and, uh, and like Microsoft. it or not. Oh no, well Microsofts they're they're part of the previous wave. Okay, you know they yeah they they're back they 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 belong in the Dell category of yeah. of, of okay. companies, and m- maybe Apple too, but they were never big like they are now um and i guess amazon you can put in that list though okay. they're it's a little different but you know google's 20 years old you know at I this know. point we're we're getting to that we're getting to that point getting where to that point yeah. where they they're they were they were the up and comers and now they're yeah, then they were yeah. here and know. now what's gonna right like there's really not so, a future in search browser stuff. One of the things that I find so interesting too about these transitions, and this goes, uh, I'll go back, right, I'll take us back around to Xerox Park and object-oriented interfaces because um, coming up with this idea about object-oriented interfaces is actually what allowed us to move forward with the conception or the conceptual model of a graphical user interface Mm. of things on a screen that you click on and you move and you grab and so on. Um, And that, you know, Apple made that pretty popular with their, with their personal computers early on, but that was actually invented by Xerox. So Mm. Xerox had the first graphical user interface. Um, by the way, the whole thing of a mouse, you know, where you 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 move something and you point and you click on it, the whole thing about drag and drop, which is this particular kind of interaction that was invented by Xerox, and it was invented coming out of that research watching. Uh, back to the children, they noticed that when the children were trying to move a large object that they couldn't just pick up and move, like you can pick up a small ball and move it. But when they wanted like this gigantic block, they would go over to it and grab it and drag it. And that's actually where drag and drop comes from. It comes from a five-year-old trying to move a big foam block across the room. Uh, And I love that. I love that. I I wish we did more research like that, watching people in, you know, non-digital environments and how they interact with objects and thinking about what does that mean we should do with the digital object. So, all right. So I want to come back then, Guthrie, and talk about this idea of objects because it's big, it's important, it 
actually is not brand new. And I think it is one of this whole, and it's, and it's critical to what we were talking about with conceptual and mental models in our last episode in the series. And it's something that for, because of the fact that it isn't easy to work with, it's not used a lot. It's not done a lot. And I think that's, when I see software and apps that are hard to learn or hard to use, I would say 70% of the time, I'm just t- picking this off the top of my head, 70% of the time or more, the reason that it's failing is because the objects and the views and the actions were not well designed. In fact, probably nobody stopped to do that level of design, and that's why it's failing. I mean, it. I just see this over and over and over. So um, if you want a product to be usable and easy to learn and easy to use, you gotta spend time deciding what objects are you gonna have people work with at each point that they're interacting with this product? What are the different views that they can have on that object? And what are the different actions they can take on the object? This is called, you know, object-oriented design. So can I give you an example? Um, I'd like to give you a couple examples, and maybe you have some questions to ask about, you know, maybe you can give some examples and we can discuss them too, Guthrie. Uh, yes, gonna... uh, just just to put a, a, a one one other fun fact about Zenith. About Zenith, oh, you're going back. In the, okay. in the 70s, they invested <laughs> yeah. in a little-known company in called. Korea called Gold Star. Okay. And Gold Star uh, yeah. grew... Yeah, and became LG Electronics. Oh, really? Which later, like like two decades later, then bought Zenith. Oh, that's so funny! Isn't that funny? Wait a minute. How do you invest? Oh, because they invested, but they hadn't acquired them. Mm-hmm. Oh, how funny is that? Something like that. Yeah, I, I'm I sure there's know a that. That's what. Yeah. So Zenith. Zenith. So Zenith uh, is owned by LG. All right, I like it, and it lives on. And it, well, I don't think I so. I had a Zenith TV <laughs> once too. Okay. So let's give some, I think we need to make this concrete. So let's give some examples. So I think most people listening, maybe not all, but most use some form of an an online calendar program, right? Outlook or Google or something, right? So thinking about a calendar program. And this is an example that actually is is pretty easy to understand and is not as abstract as some. So when you are using a calendar program, whether you are uh, looking at what you got going on that day or whether you're setting up a new appointment with someone or putting something on your calendar, there are objects that you are looking at and taking action on. Uh, Do you want to take a guess, Guthrie, as to what are some of the objects, some of the important objects that you're interacting with when you use an online calendar. And again, objects are nouns. Nouns. 
So an online calendar, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to say there's, I mean, if you want to call it the calendar, the rows and columns that make up the calendar the itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to need a series of buttons to well, do things. No, that's not, I mean, there are buttons, but, but in terms of the conceptual model, we wouldn't talk about the buttons because we're not talking about what's what you see on the screen. We're talking about conceptually. What are what is it you want to manipulate when you use an online calendar? You don't necessarily want to manipulate a button. I mean, you're going to end up doing something with a button, but that's the method. What are you trying to do with the calendar? Well, okay. Uh, the, I, the the verb is the the action mm-hmm. that you need to do is you need to be able to add things to a calendar. Oh, what are the things you're adding to the calendar? Uh, events. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's your object. So calendar itself is an object. Events or appointments or whatever it is you call them, that's an object. And then there's actually... Mm-hmm. So, so what do you call the menu, right? There's going to be some sort of menu where you can do things. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great great distinction. So we we're going to make a distinction between the the things you really want to do. Um. We use the term agnostic. That's probably a terrible term. The things you want to do, regardless of the particular technology you are using. So a menu is is a technology of your interface. A menu is just a technique we use to allow you to take actions on the object you want to take actions on. You do not go to a calendar and say, oh, yeah, let me see what my menus. No, that is not what's in your head when you're going to the calendar. You're thinking about appointments. You're thinking about weeks. You're thinking about months. You're thinking, right? You're not thinking about menus or buttons. Those are just the means by which you take actions. So what you're saying is that it, when it comes to actions, when it comes to conceptual models, we're not counting things that are in all apps. Correct. We're not counting things that are in part of it. You know, if it's a Windows application, we're not counting the start menu. At right, the or the, the pop-up window, right? Because that, that is required. That's that part of the application. It's part of it, but and that we're going to need but it. But there's nothing special about it's that. Not, it, that part is not part of the conceptual model. That's part of our technology of how we get our stuff done. But, you know, I, I should be able to design a, a whole calendar system at a level of abstraction where it doesn't matter that I don't know if I'm doing it on a laptop, a desktop, uh, a, a mobile or a voice interface, right? Because if I'm using a voice interface, I'm not using buttons. I'm not doing a menu. doesn't matter, right? So we're, we're at a level abstraction above the particular technology you're using. Yeah. It's, um, it's different. So all the Windows stuff and all the Apple, Mac, uh, 
operating system and all the iOS and all the Android and all those little things you in the plus sign and the, 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 the carrot that drops something down. None of those things are objects in the way I'm using this. Okay. So let's go back to the calendar. Cause you said there was a calendar and you said there were events um, on the calendar and then there's going to be actions, right? That I'm going to take. So uh, what kind of actions am I going to take on, for instance, an event? So event is an object. So what are the actions I want to take on that object? Um, well, an event, I mean, you have to be able to theoretically add, remove, I want to add a new event. I want to change an event. I want to look at the event. Right. So we have objects, we have actions that we want to take on those objects, and then we have one more really important piece of the conceptual model, and that's decisions about the views of the object. So again, thinking about a calendar, uh, let's think about, um, let's think about the, the object called the calendar, right? Um, what are the different ways you might want to view the calendar? So we have Guthrie's calendar. What are the different ways you might want to view that? What, what are the different views you might want to have on your calendar? A uh, week, month, You might want to view it weekly. Day. Daily. You might want to view year. it daily. Year. Month, hour, just segments of time, right? Segments of time, right? So you want to be able to look at it in different segments of time. What What are other ways that you want to view? Because calendars these days can get kind of interestingly complicated. Uh, well, theoretically, you'd have multiple calendars that you could smush into one thing. So you might have your personal calendar and your work calendar, and you want to you want to view where you see it all, but you might also want right? Uh, to filter just select items, right? So you might want a filtered view. So what we do in conceptual model design is we map out what are the main objects, the most important objects that people are going to want to interact with when using this product and doing whatever the task is that they want to do with it. What are the main objects? What are the different views we are likely to have on that object? And what are um, the different actions that people want to take on the different views of the different objects? And if we map that out, and we know that, we can now design a flow of actions and screens and pages. And now we can make decisions about menus and buttons to match that conceptual model that we've built. So that's what the conceptual model is. It's the objects, it's the views, it's the actions, and it's the flow through the different views. And it gets, I'll, I mean, hint, hint, it gets more complicated than that, but that's the basics of it. Can we take another example besides sure. the calendar? Sure. Um, you you want to think of one? 
what's a what's a task you do online or an app you use frequently? Uh, read the news. Okay, so this is a, so reading the news is interesting. Um, uh, you've heard of information architecture, yes. So this thing I just described with objects and views and actions, I call it task architecture. And it's related to but different from information architecture. And the interesting thing about reading the news, so let's talk about it. What are the uh, objects? What are the important objects? It's going to be articles. Articles. Sort of uh, st stories in some way. Okay. There's going to be... Um, uh, probably the, maybe sections okay. that you would, you know, per peruse through. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have articles. And so now we get, all right, now we get into some interesting things. And this is where you get to the point of creativity and different designers making different decisions or that's, that's going to affect the design they come up with. So I could say to you, Guthrie, that, um, that uh, articles and sections are the same object, just different views of it. I could argue that. You may or may not agree with me. And if you designed it so that they were different objects and I, with different views of each object and different actions on each object, and I designed them as though they were the same object but different views, we'd come up with two different interfaces. Mm -hmm. And that's valid. You know, there is no one one right way to design this, but some ways are probably better than others. But yeah, we can have sections. But the point, the thing that I think is interesting, if you think about um, the actions and views in, in reading the news, it's probably pretty um, monochrome you know basically you just want to get to the information you're interested in and then read it and then you want to browse to other information you're interested in and then read it right. and so it becomes more of an information architecture than it does a task architecture because the task is not extremely complicated the task is find something i'm interested in and read it right um, so in that case, we get more into things like how to organize the information in a way that makes sense, which really, you know, that's the heart of information architecture. So it's related. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's a, that I pick, that's a, that's a, so, so, so what you're saying is that doing simple things like browsing a website is very whatever. It's a conceptual model. It's, it's just, just very simple. It's a fairly simple Browsing conceptual model. And the tricky part that there is just, oh my gosh, we have so much information and how are we going to organize it? And that's information architecture. And I do, do not mean to minimize the importance of information architecture because it's critical. But I think, I think, maybe this isn't true. I think it's easier for designers and developers to understand that they need to deal with the information architecture and that that's important. And they, they, I mean, I'm not saying they always do a good job at it, but they kind of know that that's a step they need to do. Hey, maybe we better look at the information architecture. Whereas the, the other piece, the task architecture, the conceptual model for 
task-oriented um, products is usually ignored. So that's why I, I shine a special spotlight on conceptual models for that, for more complicated tasks. All right. I want you to pick another one. Um, yeah, let's maybe pick something that's harder, I suppose, huh? More task oriented. Does it have to be digital? It would probably have to be digital. Well, I, it'll help us if you use a digital example, yeah. Um, uh, buying airline tickets? Buying airline tickets. Okay. Let's take a look at that. So let's talk first about some of the major objects. Um, this is an interesting one. This will get us into some nuances. Let's, let's talk about what some of the m most important objects are when you're trying to buy airline tickets. What do you think they are? Uh, I guess that's going to be... So how do you deal with something where there are multiple steps? Yes. Because a calendar, it's all just one page. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with something that goes, you start here, mm -hmm. and then you do this thing, mm -hmm. and you go to the next phase, and you go to the next yeah. phase? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple ways to deal with that. And and so that now we're talking about task flow. We're talking about the steps the person wants to go through in order to buy the airline tickets. And there's the steps they they think they want to go through based on their mental model, right? And their mental model is based on how they've been doing it for the last, you know, X number of years. Uh, so this is why we do task analysis before we start designing. It's like, okay, so what is their mental model? So their mental model is that they're going to take these steps. And in fact, Typically, what we do when we're doing conceptual model design is we map out the current task analysis, and then we analyze that for likely objects. We just look through, literally look through the task analysis and identify the nouns, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally. I, I used to teach this, uh, I still do, but I haven't taught this in a while, but you teach this by saying to people, okay, here's the task analysis, or you make them create it, or you give it to them. And you say, now, take a blue pen and circle the nouns. And I always joke with them, like, remember when you were in middle school and uh, Mrs. Smith told you, one day you'll need to know this. You know, that day is now, right? right. So circle the nouns, and then I make them get like a red pen and draw a line underneath the verbs. So now we have the nouns and now we have the verbs. Um, and so then we can uh, go through and figure out a couple of things. What are the most important objects? Let's take the, so let's say we had, we had that. What do you think? So the steps, the steps are, they're important, but you, you will want at some point 
to stop and say, well, that's how they're used to doing it now. But now we know these are the objects and the actions they want to take. Is there a better way to do it? Should we try and match their mental model? Or is there something new we could do that might be better? I mean, that's when you can step back and ask that. And then when you go to to actually put these objects and actions into play, you do what I call a screen flow diagram and you map out, well, okay, the first object they're going to deal with um, is, uh, you know, a, a, they're trying to buy a ticket. They're trying to get a ticket. They're trying to purchase a flight. So they've got, um, you know, uh, a trip. That's an object, is the trip. And, the, you know, here's the steps they want to follow. Okay, so what do they need to know about the trip? What do they need to see about the trip? What is the view of the trip? And, and you actually map that all out. So the steps are very, very important. But they're not exactly the same as the objects, you know? Because you can have, show the objects and different views of the objects in a different order. So what are the objects when you're trying to buy an airline ticket? Well... So, I mean, at some point, there's you have to search for stuff. Well, you know, search is not an not object. A, it's not an object. That's a that's an action. That's an action. Uh, you're going to have prices. Yes. You're going to have slight information. What does that mean? The names of the planes and the times that they leave and the different options. I mean, mm -hmm. options, I guess options is a verb or as a noun. Options, like what kind of options? Um, options is a noun. Sort of like, sort of like uh, the different times of day that the flights run, the different okay. routes, the how many stops the it has, planes, how long the layover is. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lot of stuff like that. Those things aren't major objects. Those are sub-objects, or we could even call them attributes. So if you take, if you collect them together, Guthrie, if, if I'm looking at how long is the layover, how many stops are there, which city is it going through, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all pieces of what? I'm Because I'm not going to be thinking, I mean, I am thinking about those details, but... I, I don't want to have to deal with all those details separately. So as the human, I think of that as what? What's the object? Know. The I major object. I don't know. What's the object? I mean, there's not one right answer. It could be the trip. The, the trip. itinerary. Hmm. The... Uh, my, my flight path, you know, that's, that's going to be the object. And, and so what I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to make choices about all these attributes for my object. You know, one thing that might be nice that you typically can't do at the airline websites is, you know, I'd like to I'd like to be able to build this trip over here, assuming I go through Chicago, 
And then I'd like to build another trip where, no, I don't go through Chicago on American. I go through uh, Minneapolis on Delta. And it would be nice to be able to view those side by side, right? And can be, and I, you know, you can't do that. So there's, a, it, there's some, it's complicated. And sometimes they make good choices about objects and views. And sometimes the airline websites don't. So for instance, for me, because I am a control freak, uh, the particular seating options for a particular flight, I am very interested in, and that is going to affect which flight I take. And yet it's not easy to find that because they don't think that's an important attribute or particularly important. And for me, it's a very important attribute. So I would like to be able to to see that attribute more easily. I might be an outlier, so maybe we don't design for me. But if you identified what are the main objects and what are the different views that you might have on that object, and then what are the actions that people need to take on each view, and if we had that identified, now we could play around with, here's here's alternative A of how we might design this. Here's alternative B. Here's alternative C. And then we have to decide, you know, maybe we even, you know, do we let people switch their views? Could we do that? Is that a good thing for people to do or is that just going to confuse them? Do we let people filter their views? Mm. Right? So that's what you do with a conceptual model. And I think that's a good one, back to the thing we, we mentioned last time about whether we design to match their current mental model. Because I think, you know, with something like airlines or searching for a hotel or any of those travel things, there are some pretty strongly set uh, mental conceptual models that we've all developed mental models on. I don't know if you remember, you may not remember this, Guthrie, when um, Kayak first came out or Expedia or any of those travel aggregators. Um, because that was new. Yeah. And those were different conceptual model designs because well, now. Yes and no. Mm, yeah, they were kind of like, they were kind of being like a travel uh, advisor. They were being a travel advisor, and the fact that I could, I could, it was, because before that, you had to go to each individual airline site. So it was very hard to compare American versus Delta for that route. Uh, you know, even, I think even still on most of the airlines. Southwest. Pardon? Southwest um, still has all their stuff on one place. And yeah, but you're right. Most of the airlines, like, or hotels do this, where our best deals yeah. are on, you know, if you go to soandso.com. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, Guthrie, I was um, teaching an, a little online workshop session on this. Uh, this whole idea of conceptual models. And you know what I used? No. Your the <laughs> the train trains website that you 
<laughs> showed me for tra trains in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Because it was a great example of um, really bad object decisions <laughs> that pretty much then made it impossible, or pretty almost impossible, to book a train. Uh, because the it was like you could not figure out what were the objects, what were the views, what what were the actions, you know. And and I'm not saying that the user would, you know, no, very few users. I'm probably you know one of the few people in the world that would be using an app and commenting on the objects and views and actions. So I'm not saying that users will will articulate it this way. Um, I remember years ago reading a critique by a very well-known UX person, and I won't say who, but just one of the you know major UX people who said um, who said that metaphors in a, in a, in software don't matter, and it doesn't matter what metaphor you've chosen. Uh, because if you've ever done a user test, the user never says this metaphor is wrong. <laughs> it's like, well, of course we're not going to say this metaphor. It's just like, yeah, objects and views are not important because no user is ever going to say, I don't understand what the object is. Okay, they're not going to say that. But that doesn't mean that, you, that this isn't a, a big problem. So people aren't going to articulate it that way. But whenever you have... Uh, whenever someone is looking at a screen and they say things like, where, what am I doing? Where, what is this? What am I, what am I looking at? Okay. That means that there's, a, there are problems with the conceptual model and the problems might be that you chose an object that does not make sense to them. That is not the object they were wanted to look at, view, take action on. That is one possible problem. And the other possible problem is it is the object they want. Well, there's three problems. The other the second problem is it is the object they want, but you've named it something goofy that does not match with their mental model. So they're looking at what they want to be looking at, except the name of it, they're looking, they just get stuck and they're like, what it what is it? What is a channel? What does that channel? What does that mean? Channel. I don't know what that means. Because you shouldn't have called it channel, you should have called it app. Right. Well, what? I said, yeah. 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 So either you pick the wrong object or you pick the right object, but you gave it the wrong name. Or number three, you have a total mishmash of objects. You have like seven objects on the screen and they don't know where to look. It's like, wait a minute, what? Where, what am I looking at? Which one? Is that, am I supposed to deal with that or am I supposed to deal with that? So those are those are really typical object problems, um, and because you know the the big problem Guthrie with this whole conceptual model thing and objects and views, the main problem is not that you picked a 
that you made bad object choices or bad naming choices or bad view choices. The problem is you didn't pick anything. You didn't do this consciously at all. You just started creating screens. You didn't think about how their what their mental model is, what they think these things are, what they what are the objects they want to deal with. You didn't map out their expected task flow or or even create a, an optimized task flow that might not be what they're used to, but might actually better fit the tasks they're trying to do. You didn't do any of that stuff. You you came up with your ideas without thinking about the users, or you're just letting the programming structure bubble up and that's becoming, you know, your objects. And, um, yeah, that, that usually doesn't work. Usually doesn't work. So, yeah. So if you want to design a product that is easy to use and easy to learn, you got to take some time to do this conceptual model stuff. You got to think about objects and views and actions and uh, task flows. And it's hard work. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of fun, but that just shows you how weird I am. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know the other thing that frustrates people when I teach this to them? Uh, especially uh, if they're developers. What? There's no one right answer. <laughs> I you, you know, when I first started teaching this, Guthrie, it was before there were UX people. Mm. And so I would be teaching programmers and developers how to do this. And they and we would do a little exercise and they would come up with, you know, objects and views and actions and map them out and and then they'd look at me and they'd go, so what's the right answer? <laughs> and I would say, there isn't a right answer. And then they're like, what do you mean there isn't a right answer? It's like, no. There's like different ways to do it. And the different ways will you'll end up with different interfaces. And some of the interfaces might be more usable than others. But it's not like there's one right way to do it. And that really bothered them. They really wanted to know, like, the right way. I think that's very common. People just just tell me what the right answer is. You know? Yeah. So one other thing I want to mention before we leave this, because I know we have just a few minutes left, is it's really important as, you know, you come up with these decisions about objects and views and actions. You have to test this with your users. And you can't test it just by saying, hey, here's the objects we think are going to be important to you. And then we were thinking about these views and uh, these actions. You have to um, you have to do a high-level prototype, high-level conceptual design prototype to test your flows that use these objects, views, and actions. And uh, that's not hard to do. And it does not have to be detailed. It can be a wireframe. It can be, you know, back in the day, I used to do it with paper and pen and post-it notes. Um, 
In fact, it's better if you don't do it with a high fidelity prototype. Uh, it should look like it's still just being worked on. So sketches are fine. Um, and, but you've got to test it out because you might be wrong. You might right. be, you know, the name of it is not quite right. Or there's actually another view that you didn't think about that is actually really important to them. Um, or the, the flow of pages and screens, once you've decided on your objects and views is not quite right. And, uh, you got to change that. Um, so you, you have to test it out. And when you're designing screens, by the way, the, the thing that becomes then actually very easy if you do this, so you do all that conceptual model work and that's really hard, but you know, it's easy if you've done all these pieces up, up to this point, design is merely, is merely at this point in the task, they want to see the um, trip object and they want to see it in the, I'm trying to think of a good example, uh, in the, in the uh, flight option view. So you know exactly what object and what view to show at that point. Now you've got to design that page or screen that is showing that object in that view, but you know what it should be. And you can even define the attributes, you know, what should be on the screen. Oh, well, we got to show the city, the departing city, and the, and the, um, the time, and, you know, whatever attributes you think are critical to show, show at that point. You can identify those ahead of time, and then you just draw the screen. <laughs> so the, um, <laughs> the other thought I want to leave you with is a thought you and I talked about last week that you were like, no, don't want to talk about that. Don't want to go there. But I think these are the inputs into the AI interface design system. The objects and views. The objects and views and um, objects, views, actions, and attributes, you could feed that into an AI and it would create the screens for you. Dun, dun, dun. So you'll have that all programmed and ready to go next week. Uh, I don't think no. so. So do you think I'm crazy? Well, that's that's a loaded question. But do you think do you think anybody's gonna do this? Objects, views, you know, not the AI stuff. The uh, just objects and views and actions and conceptual model design. No. Or no? <laughs> Did you just say no? No. Uh, I think I, I think I think you're right. But it's uh, hard. But it's hard, and uh, I think it's harder than most people really want to. <laughs> people just don't want to work this much. <laughs> Uh, there's, I think, I think there's an element of that. I mean, it's, yeah. it just, it just takes a lot of like everyone, you also have to get, every, it, it's hard to get everyone on board, right? Yeah. Hey, the developers, we're designing a thing, you know, it's like, okay, so here's, here's the plan. Yeah. You know, find the nouns in the sentence. Like, what is going on? 
Mystery well, you don't have to. Okay, you don't always have to go through all of those steps. No, I know, but you. But but if it's something but hard and amorphous, you kind of they're going to you know, have to. Gonna have to. So, so I think I think there is a. But then we're doomed to never have usable apps. I I think yeah, no kidding. Um, and th- and this is hard if you don't if you don't plan this out ahead of time. This is hard to iterate your way into a good design. It's that's not a particularly efficient. You you probably won't get there. If you don't design the conceptual model beforehand and you just muddle into a design, you will likely never get into a place where the, you, you've actually stumbled upon a good conceptual model design. It's not going to happen. So then I think we're just doomed to have um, software that's hard to use. Until, until we get, until I can take over the entire thing and do the inputs into the AI. So we just got to wait for me to dominate the world in terms of conceptual model design. I don't think it's going to happen. But that's my take on it, Guthrie. Hmm. And if you want to do great design, um, and if you want to do great behavioral design that encourages people to take particular action and to get particular tasks done, this is the magical method. I used to call this when I taught it, uh, our initial, we have an online video course that's called Conceptual Model Design, but do do you remember or do you know what it was initially called? Uh, something about magic, something. The secrets of intuitive design. Secrets. Yeah, that's what it was called. Yep. Mm. All right. Hey, thank you for listening to me, Guthrie, and to all of our listeners. Thank you for letting me talk on and on and on about this topic. One of my favorite topics, I do encourage you to think about the conceptual design uh, of your product and whether it works well with the mental model of your users. So we'll go all the way back to where we started in our episode last time. Uh, that's what we're trying to do, is make, make that be a good match. All right, Guthrie, I managed to use up an entire hour. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, this is a This is a hard topic, but hopefully people enjoyed it. And we do teach a workshop on it. Can I put that plug in? Please, always. If you want, if you want to learn how to do this, let us know. Yeah. We'll come teach you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thank Bye bye.